Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Jonathan Gross, a former journalist turned writer and producer whose screen credits include the Facili Jerry episode of Seinfeld, which more or less guarantees him immortality, and the Butler Brothers film First Round Down, starring friend of the show Rachel Wilson. He's also the president of Unobstructed View, a theatrical and home distribution company which recently acquired the Canadian rights to the Criterion Collection, and they're celebrating with a domestic Black Friday sale, offering 40% off the Criterion catalog and 50% off the Arrow video catalog for the rest of November. Jonathan picked The Flamingo Kid, Gary Marshall's 1984 comedy starring Matt Dillon as a poor kid from Brooklyn who spends the summer of 1963 working as a cabana boy at a Long Island resort, where he's drawn to the daughter of a car dealer and to a style of living he hasn't really experienced before, much to the irritation of his working-class father. It's your basic coming-of-age story, but it's set in a specific time and place with the key roles perfectly cast. Dylan's easily swayed hero is caught between Richard Krenner's magnetism and Hector Elizondo's gravitas, and you can pretty much see the appeal on both sides. It's not a complicated picture exactly, but it's a Gary Marshall picture, and he was good at keeping things simple. This is someone else's movie. You know, I, I'm from Brooklyn originally, and I remember Brooklyn in 1963, and I remember America in 1963. So there's a lot to that. Mm-hmm. Remembering a, I had grandparents who had a cabana at a beach club back in those days. Right. I remember as a little boy going to visit them. So this is your world? Or in, in a large way, in a large way. And and the film really, even though Gary Marshall was Italian and... Um, Film is very much about about Jews in Brooklyn and, and, and those beach clubs back in those days. It was like a post Catskills type of thing to do. Before people built fifty million dollar homes in the Hamptons, they would rent a cabana for the summer and they'd have a social life and had food. It was, it was you know, it wasn't upper class, but it was certainly a middle class thing to do. Yeah, I'm a little bit younger with with my family. It was Grossinger's and going to the Catskills. Right, Grossinger's driving was, down from Canada. Right, right. Grossinger's closed was one of the last ones to close, and they're trying to revive it, but. That in the Concord, I think. Was That's the right. And then my uh, my sister played a couple of those clubs, and she was a comedian. Oh, really? Yeah. And and this was kind of post Catskills or toward the end. Dirty Dancing takes place about the same time. Mm-hmm. And and it's a simple coming of age story. But it, it's funny how you remember seeing it in the theater. I lived at Danforth and Pape at the time, and my fiance and I remember going to the theater. And there was a Cineplex two-screen place at Danforth and Pape for a while. Oh, yeah. You literally walk from my place a half a block and see the film. And, and for some reason, I had an um, extremely conscious moment of, of, of remembering that experience. And when you get older, you remember not so much the films, but the actual experience of seeing the films. You remember the first time I saw Annie Hall, first time I saw Apocalypse Now, and a bunch of other movies. Mm-hmm. Um, Who you were with, where you saw it. Yeah, them. and... and, and, and my, 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 she passed away last year, my wife. She was my ex-wife at the time. But we always had this thing up our line in the film about Larry's Fish House, which is the closing scene. It takes place in Queens or Sheepshead Bay or something. And the Larry's Fish House, any fish you wish. And we always had that in a Brooklyn accent, and we talked about that. And that was something for me. Uh, and Something else happened to me many years ago. My sister passed away in L.A., and she was friends with a woman who was very close to Gary Marshall. And I was having a horrible time cleaning out my sister's house by myself. It was terrible. She says, why don't you take a break, and let's go to Gary's house, and you'll play a couple hours of tennis with Gary, and you can schmooze with him. And it, it, it more, he was more than, than the kind of terrific guy people said he was terrific. He was just a wonderful guy. And we sat and talked about Flamingo Kid. And we talked about the first season and a half of Happy Days, the one camera. And he says, you're very knowledgeable. And I, I wasn't on my game tennis-wise, but he was a good guy. And we, we, had, a, we had a great time. So it, it all weaves in. And, and when you watch films now, I, I put the film on a couple of days in order to prep for this. And, you know, it, you have this kind of bittersweet feeling for it. You're bittersweet for so many reasons about... America that no longer exists for people that no longer exist. And, and as I watch it now, it's like when you watch Annie Hall. When I watched Annie Hall when it first came out. I was a young kid and I laughed my way through it. And it's still my favorite movie. And There's a scene in the movie where um, he goes back to visit his old relatives in Brooklyn. And he's standing there mocking them 
because they're all very simple, mm-hmm. simple Brooklyn Jews. And when you watch the movie the first time, you, you're laughing with him. Look at these people. Now you watch it, you cry because you miss those people. So in, 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 in my latest watching of the film, what struck me most was Hector Elizondo, who, who's a favorite of Gary Marshall's and sure, in a lot yeah. of films, and, and how people like Hector Elizondo's character doesn't, don't exist anymore. Hardworking guy, fought in the war, proud plumber, good father, mm-hmm. values, trying to raise his kid with some, some sense, of, sense of, of himself in the world, and... The kid rebels because he gets caught up in the flashiness of, of Richard Crenna. It's a great character. Sure. Well, and he's supposed to seduce us, right? Crenna's there to draw us. Right. And, and, they, and he, the kid was taught well because he gets past it and reunites with his father, with his father at Larry's Fish House. Right. And, and everybody as a kid, you know, there's so few good coming-of-age films. And this one was a simple little story. It took 11 years to get made. You know, it was like Cass Elliot when she was alive, her last year, brought the film, the script to, to you know, I guess it was Neil Marshall. And then Bo Goldman has a credit, an, an unwritten credit on this thing. Yep. Bo Goldman wrote for Cuckoo's Nest and Milton Meet Joe Howard, Black and, and, and Scent of a Woman, I mean, real movies. So there's some craft in this film. It's not just a simple throwaway film because the characters are very well drawn, and including people like Bronson Pinchot have there, Fisher Stevens, and a very, very, very young and misplaced Janet Gretzky. Yeah. <laughs> With Janet Jones, doesn't just, quite pull the ethnic thing off, but but was, that was her first role. Yeah, and just you know, everybody associated her with Police Academy. She was in that, and it was That's right. because she was already dating That's right. Gretzky, right? Or she maybe they were already Police married. Academy is after this. This was introducing Janet Jones. Yeah, no, Jones. I know. I, I remember people thinking, "Oh, she's amazing." It's like, well, I remember her from Flamingo Kid, <laughs> right? So she's not. This isn't the first. It's the first time anyone paid attention. That's to her, right. right? You know, and I think it was also it was also the first PG thirteen film. It was. Technically, it was. But it didn't I, come I, out until five others came out, yeah, but, but it was the first PG-13 It film. surprised me researching this a little to find out that the first PG-13 movie was Red Dawn of all films. That's right. That's right. Uh, Swayze film, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I love this film um, for what it was and for what, it, for what, it, for what I lost. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and, I, and I watch it like my sister and I used to have a ritual every spring of watching a film called Palm Springs Weekend. Uh, Troy Donahue, okay. it's, it's a Warner's answer to the AI beach movies. And they'd run it on Channel 7 in Buffalo every spring because of spring break. And it was a stupid little film, but we did that. And, and when I watched the film now, I remember watching that film. So when it comes to this film, it, I, I love the film, period. I love, I love the gin. I love Matt Dillon is flat out fabulous. He was 19 years old when he shot the film. He was the right age. He showed up. He did the work. I once did a um, kids TV show as a producer in New York with Chris Makepeace. Oh, yeah. And Makepeace had done My Bodyguard, my bodyguard yeah. with Dylan. And Makepeace at the time did the best Matt Dillon impression of anybody I'd ever seen. And Dylan is an iconic type of guy. I mean, he really – he's had a long career and, and this was the beginning of his career. He was great. So I bought into it, you know, and, and, and there's a subtext there about, about Fisher Stevens and those guys coming up in the convertible and getting him out to the beach club. It's – Seeing the transition in Brooklyn, people living in Brooklyn and then moving out to the island and the new prosperity and things like that. So there's a lot of subtle things in it. And, and again, I, I, the beach club was, was undeniably Jewish, but since Gary Marshall was Italian, he had an Italian character in there playing cards. And it had an ethnicity to it that was very appealing. Mm-hmm. So it, it still uh, delights me that Gary Marshall spent his entire career being mistaken for a Jewish guy from yeah, the Bronx. I mean, right. It's indistinguishable, ultimately. Yeah. Like, the accent is the accent. He, he, a wonderful man. He, he financed – I lived in, in L.A. for a while, and he financed a theater called The Falcon, which was across from Bob's Big Boy on Riverside in Toluca Lake. And it was a 99-seat theater, so it was non-union. So okay. big stars would come in and do plays, and it's a wonderful place to go. They, ch- they just changed it after he passed away to the Gary Marshall. Oh, that's – And uh, it, he's a was a wonderful man. Yeah. I only met him – much later in life, uh, I did the press junket for New Year's Eve. Right, he did that. In L.A., yeah, which was one of his ensemble holiday yeah. anthology things. And he clearly just knocked it out. He wasn't really putting much effort no. into it. But he seemed to take so much pleasure in the performance of being Gary Marshall at that point. Oh, really? he'd been doing the TV appearances. And, you know, like ever since, what, Murphy and, Brown, I guess, yep. when it started to really form around him that he could be an actor as well. And he just, he relished this whole... 
I don't know how to explain it. He, he played himself in on bongos. <laughs> he, and, he and Hector Elizondo both oh, really? came out first before anybody else. With bongos? Set up, each of them set up bongos. And, played, and started um, to play and introduced everybody else from the film as they came in. Oh, that's the, wonderful. The press conference. That's wonderful. And, you know, I, the, the mood of the room was, was up and it was, it was sweet and funny and charming. And I really hated the film. But right. in that moment, I could sort of glimpse what people liked about Gary Marshall, which is that he really has no – like he's a, he, is, he is a journeyman. He goes from script to script, picture to picture. He makes movies he wants to make. And something about that, there's, there's a weird purity in, in the, here's, in the here's, drift. Here's what you said just before, a sweet, funny, and charming, I think you said. Mm-hmm. And charming is a word you don't hear ascribed to too many films anymore. Or people, uh, hell yeah. yeah. Yeah, so we live in a world without charm. And so films, if there were nothing else back in the, in the, in the great days of movies, were charming. You, you, there were charming characters. There was Cary Grant. There were guys who had charm. Yeah, the first thing that popped into my head when you said that was Philadelphia Story, even before you mentioned it. Right. So, so that, that was inbred. People were well, were well trained. Their voices were, were better trained. They, they didn't come in on the set in their street clothes. I mean, blah, 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 blah. So this film had some charm. Because it didn't cross any lines, there wasn't any, there wasn't any subtext. You know, there was a, a coming of age, a kid, and the way they 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 lit it, and the way they handled the sounds, you felt you were by the beach. You'd always hear the waves. There was wind, there was breeze. It, it, I, I felt I was there. Mm-hmm. And charm is hard to find. I, the last charming film I saw that deals with this subject was probably Adventureland. That's yeah. right. It's a Greg Matola film where we, Eisenberg is very good. Kristen Stewart is very good. It had a little coming-of-age charm and, and kind of a rowdier thing, but it was a summer job story. And yeah. Also a film that's set in the recent past. Like The remove is, right. is there the same way the remove That's right. I think it was 85, was it? No, it was supposed to take place in the 80s. 85, 86, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, Ryan Reynolds is great. I mean, so, so the charm factor, I, just, I wrote a script that I'm trying to get made. It takes place in 91, 92. I'm getting some good reads. It, it's on the same kind of tack. It, it, it's, <laughs> it relates to what we're talking about. So I, uh, Rob Siegel is a friend of ours, and he, he wrote The Wrestler. And oh, yeah. He read the script, and he said, if Paul Mazursky was alive today, <laughs> so they automatically they're not making movies that's like a, this yeah, anymore. I was going to say that's a <laughs> Who, knows, who, who even knows who Paul Mazursky is outside of You and me and, a, and a, maybe a few of your, your listeners. Oh, God, I hope so. So, so that's what— forty-eight episodes. No one's picked a Paul Mazursky movie yet. Just putting that out there. Really? Yeah. Wow. Anyone's listening. That's, there's a few of them, too. The die is cast, yeah. Um, uh, so that's kind of what appeals to me is, is kind of the charm. You know, there's a black character in the film. He's one of the card jockeys. But it's treated in kind of a, okay, great. You know, he's part of, there's no statements. There's mm-hmm. no nothing. He's getting a scholarship to play ball. He loses all his money in the track. Mm-hmm. By the way, John Turturro has a small role in the track. He's getting into a fight like guys. And, it, it, it doesn't – it's not one of these things that, that you can come out and say it's not politically correct or something like that. It still works on yeah. a family basis and the power of family and Elizondo and Dylan are, are terrific. And, and Krenna – Krenna is fabulous. And Krenna's wife is um, – what's her name? Jessica Walter. Jessica Walter, yeah. Who looks terrific in a bikini and she's wearing a bikini for most of the things. She's 42 years old. So it, And they all take place at this club where people would sit the whole day. Mm. They, they'd have food. They had cha-cha lessons. But – but the other thing I, I want to re- reference is, again, it was 1963. Yeah. And that might have been the last summer of America. Before the Beatles, before Kennedy. And it was purposely done that year. Same way, same way American Graffiti, I think, was 62, was yeah. it not? Yep. It's about but, the kind of the creeping loss of innocence. That's right. The loss of that America, that, that, that post-war America, yeah. where everyone might was right. I mean, Mickey Mantle. And there's always Yankee games playing in the background. Um, and that's important to note because people seem to be living with a lot less gravitas. Yeah. Well, you know? I wonder if it's just that it feels to me like Gary Marshall never really understood the counterculture. Like he was never a part of it. He's old enough to have seen it. Sure. But he's always the guy who makes nostalgia conformist. I mean, Interesting. You know, Fonzie, right? Like that was his idea. Interesting, interesting, interesting. I, I um... And I don't think it's a negative thing that, that – the Flamingo Kid is is drenched in this nostalgia for the way things used to be. I just wonder if that's the, really the way he saw it and didn't, you know, we're bringing the rest of it. We're bringing the, 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 the looming sorrow. That's an interesting 
way to look at it. I didn't thought of that. Mm-hmm. But Marshall's always worked in the commercial space. Yeah, sure. Odd Couple, you know, all these things that he had, Laverne and Shirley, uh, you know, well, he had every show, you know, never know he had oh, no, he, he owned ABC. And, 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 and yeah, and, and, I mean, Happy Days has, you know, made the funds. I interviewed Henry Winkler last year. He was doing an appearance at a synagogue near me, and what a lovely guy. And he, he really, he is that guy. He is Henry Winkler. There's mm-hmm. no very positive guy. Gary Marshall was his father, he said, pretty much. Oh, that's sweet. So that, that's a wonderful thing. And that maybe is the larger context of the film, is that, is that it is part of the oeuvre. Mm-hmm. Gary Marshall, which didn't peek under the hood too much. No, and I think that's why people still love the movies he made in the 80s and the 90s. Right. Like the stuff that maybe would have dated if it was made by someone who was trying to make a statement. Um, I, I think about, have you seen Bojack Horseman? Have you seen his episode? No. He plays a character not unlike Gary Marshall, a very genial filmmaker, television director, film director. All right. And there's a season, I think it's season three, where his, his motif, his just recurring point as a director is, relax, we're not making Casablanca. <laughs> and you feel it. Like, you feel the humor there that Gary Marshall is doing this and that someone got Gary Marshall to say this and all that. But then in the next season, they, they bring him back for one episode where he points out that, yes, of course we're not making Casablanca. Someone else already made that. We're making a completely different picture. Just oblivious. Oh, really? And, and Marshall was fine with it. Like, he's, he's in for the self-parody. Right. He's clearly aware of what's going on. And it's just so weird and sweet. And it does seem to sum up an essential aspect of his personality, which is that, you know, he's there to shoot the page. I loved him in Lost in America, too. Oh, yeah, he was great. The rooms, the meals, comped. Yeah. The geniality of a yeah, man who's yeah. refusing to give you anything <laughs> and knows he has all the power. That's right. No, and it just was it quietly, was you know, pleasantly. Nope, nope, nope. But you, but like I said, you needed guys like that because because I, I, at my age, uh, I find entertainment not that very entertaining. Mm. And there was a Regis Philbin who said this at the end of the Dean Martin infomercial, back when entertainment was entertaining. It's and still there. You just I, I, I don't I am not entertained and and, and I, maybe I'll go see some live theater. Uh, I saw a couple of films at the festival, you know, okay. Mm-hmm. Um but but rare is a film uh, you know that stays with me uh, outside of the Tarantino film, which is which is my And that's nostalgia. Total, right? that's, yeah, right. Yeah. That's there's no there's no arguing with that. The soundtrack is enough to get him an Oscar. <laughs> you know, and I lived in LA. I mean I knew LA back then. And he, he was very specific about the landmarks, very specific about the style. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it's nostalgia. So yeah. I get that now from movies that are shot in Toronto but aren't supposed to be here. I, I find – I've always felt there's never been a really great Toronto movie. Videodrome. Interesting. I had Outrageous was okay. the one that I, I would – because yeah. it, it smelt like slush. I was going to say Outrageous is one I haven't seen in a while, but I remember the textures. Yeah, that's, that's a grainy 16 mil slush bus. Yeah. And that, that, that's like when they shot – um, I'm off topic here, and they shot Barney's version in Montreal, which mm. I, I despise. Yeah, I was not a fan. Uh, why are you shooting Montreal in the summer? Because it looks like New York. No, it was supposed to be Montreal. I know, but, but that's like... That's but you shoot Montreal in the winter. The instinct. Which yeah. was Duddy Kravitz did, and that looked like Montreal. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a big difference. So there are no... So Videodrome's interesting. That That's an interesting call. It's Queen West. It's the... Yeah, yeah, you don't know. Of Queen West. Yeah, yeah you. Like, I was there. That's, and that's, that's how all of this works, right? Like if you connect to something through that nostalgic prism, if it replicates or, or approximates right. what you remember. I mean, Videodrome isn't a period piece. It was, I think I'm pretty sure I walked through the set at least once as a kid. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Well, it was just there. It's, and moving The very, physicality very of things when you can relate to something mm-hmm. like, um, but like this you, film, like, yeah, like this I'm, film physically, I can relate to, say, to yeah. hot street corners in Brooklyn. My grandparents lived at Ocean Avenue in L, and I was down there a lot. And I remember Coney Island. I mean, I, I remember the, the perspiration you get on a hot day at the beach, and that's in the film. Well, I was going to say, the one thing that New York summer movies, unless like Weekend at Bernie's, which takes it to an absurd right. thing at the very beginning with the tar melting, New York is disgusting from, from like June 25th to September 25th. It and, is. And this film gets the exodus, the yeah. need to get out of the city and do something At any else. cost. And, and it's, again, this what people, this what passed as high-end back then. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, this what passed as high-end. You, you, the high-end was, was owned by the Wasps at that point. It's like, it's like the other film that I, I like in New York is a Desperately Seeking Susan. Oh, yeah. It's a very New York summer film. Yeah. And, and that's got the same kind of feel. But the scenes out in the pavement and these simple guys working in grocery stores, and 
you know, it, it was just, it was Canarsie. I don't know exactly, Bed-Stuy, I forget exactly what neighborhood they were in, but, but the L was there, so I mean, it could have been King's Highway. But uh, I, I, I felt it. And, and you know, whenever, every time I see the film, now, now, another story I'll tell you. Yeah, please. So my son went to some fancy film school in Boston and, uh, about 10, 11 years ago. And I took him and his Friday on a ski trip, some ski break to Killington, and I brought Flamingo Kid with me. And these were like, you know, you know, Kurosawa, you know, it's film school yahoos, you know, they got their own theories and you're an idiot. So let's watch Flamingo Kid. And I put it on, they go, well, that was, that was pretty good. Because <laughs> yeah. they as kids could relate to that, that part of their life. I was already too old to relate to the buddies and the guys. And oh, I, I see. I'd had that thing, but I wasn't in the middle of it. They were in the middle of the guy thing and the posse and, and, the, and the crew. And that's what they had there. And I thought that was great that my, my son could, could relate to a film like Flamingo Kid. Well, this is what I mean. Like it's, if it's not so engaged with the minutiae of the detail, you know, like uh, I'm, I'm imagining a contemporary remake where it spends 10 minutes on the politics of the club before you right, get in the door. Right, right, exactly right. But by just kind of showing up and getting into it, you allow people to bond with whatever right. aspect of the film that they And they, 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 they took the camera inside. You could feel what was going on. They are playing the cha-cha music. You know, they're making, they were supposed to be making a stage play of Flamingo Kid. Really? In Connecticut, I believe, oh. last summer. I didn't hear anything about it, but there was supposed to be a stage play, a, a musical. Ugh, I was about to say, don't let it be. Yeah, no, no, well, you have to let it be. <laughs> Shouldn't do that. I guess no. you could maybe they, do they're it. They're doing one now. It's, it's, uh, what's his face? Camera Crow's doing... Um, Almost Famous. Yeah. Yeah. But at least with that one, they have existing music. Right? Like you don't... You have no, there, no, there's new songs. Oh, really? You know, it's, the, the, the other stuff drifts in. No, there's actually songs. Use the songs from the movie. No, no, you well, can't. You know, no. I can sort of see as a jukebox musical, maybe if you use the songs of the era. No, they've actually written some songs. No. Yeah, it's painful stuff to People realize in life. do this. I... I am, listen, I'm upset that Spielberg's doing West Side Story. I mean, yeah, I don't see the point of that. <laughs> I'm glad we're on the same page here. <laughs> I, I, I seldom get people saying, you know, yeah, yeah you're right. It, it's a good idea not to. Um, so so if, if you look at, you know, how you grew up and, and the visceral connection to a film, you can almost bypass a lot of things. Sure. Oh, of course. There's a lot of films that aren't the greatest but you love because, well, that was me. Yeah. You well, know? because you were the right age when you saw it, too. I mean, right. I was, I, was, I was 30, 30 years old when I saw it, and I could really, I still had a grandmother living from Brooklyn, and I have still had that. But I, I will say to you that, that this is about relationships with people. And my, my ex-wife, my late ex-wife, um, didn't, we didn't have the same sense of humor on a lot of things. And, and I think that the fact that we, we connected on this little thing uh, stead us very well yeah, just through the years. It was like the... The time I saw her laugh the hardest was um, we went to see Uncle Buck. She was about nine and a half months pregnant. Yeah. And the Buck melanoma line, she, right, she yes. had, almost burst her water there. It's my favorite scene. <laughs> it's, like, it's everybody's favorite scene. Well, it's just it's the, the grace with which John Candy spits yeah. it out. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that little moment where he can't control himself. JC, uh, yeah. JC was one of the greatest guys to have a beer with that ever existed. I never met him. I um, saw him. We were in the same place once, but I never met him. We spent some time with on the um, – Stripes Junket. Mm-hmm. We sat at Chasen's all night, drank, and he knew me from before. He had his own show called Johnny Toronto. When he left SCTV in a huff, CTV gave him a deal for years. It wasn't a very good show. Yeah, I don't think I ever saw it. And we sat at the Queen, it's Queen, Queen, one of those Queen pubs and drank all night. And you didn't want to drink with him because you were under the table yeah. and he was still going. I had added the second gear already. But what a wonderful, funny, naturally funny guy. Um, How did he not work? He must have worked with Marshall at some point. Just running through to my head. I don't know. Yeah, it was John Hughes, right? Yeah, I don't know that he ever worked with Gary Marshall. No, he did John Hughes films. I mean, that's kind of. Yeah, and Marshall, yeah. like by the time when Candy died, Marshall was still sort of ramping up. No, yeah, Marshall was Marshall was movie, was was doing, but Marshall was definitely past. This is well past Pretty Woman. I mean, this is well, Pretty Woman was, was ninety, right? Well, yeah, Candy died in ninety four. Yeah, I suppose. And and the the only Pretty Woman story I have is that. Um, Jason Alexander came to Toronto and did a UJA function many years ago, and it was a, a Q and A with Elliot Friedman from Hockey Night in Canada. Did a great job, and, and he was hilarious. And he talked about Pretty Woman. He did an impression of Gear and did an impression of Gary Marshall, and that the, the script meant nothing. Gary said, "Yeah, tell tell Richard you you like his shoes," and they'd go from there. It, w- it was wasn't supposed to be a comedy. It was 
Yeah, no, the original script was this dark, serious. Yeah, and uh, Gary just went on set. Yeah, and Gary went on set and just changed the whole thing. And no one wanted to admit it, it worked. Yeah, his, his instincts are fascinating. They're like almost entirely diametrically opposed to what I enjoy as a, as a critic. I mean, like, I it would be. <laughs> It would be unfair. It would be it would be disingenuous of me to do this episode and not say eh, most of his stuff. But there, when he when he nailed something, I like the Flamingo Kid. I'm very fond of uh, weirdly young doctors in love because it just well, there's one. Yeah, it just it knows exactly what it's doing. You're right. And it's and it's now it's dated terribly and it's it's yeah. horribly transphobic. But it's <laughs> also I mean a lot of stuff is from the from the eighties. Sure. Uh, but. Going for the beats of the comedy and the 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 way he gives his actors room to deliver, and it, it happens again in the Flamingo Kid too. Like right. he gets out of Dylan's way once or twice. That's right. In these just these lovely little moments of him just looking at things and observing things, there's texture in that performance. It's so. funny you should say that. I always felt my, my my favorite scene in The Godfather was when Pacino and and uh, Brando are just sitting in the garden and there's nothing happening. Yeah. You hear the breeze. They're sort of at ease with each other. And and you're right to say that about Dylan. He doesn't have to do much mm-hmm. except react to his surroundings. And, and other the, directors might have pushed him to go harder, right. to go bigger. But the point in the film where he's doing the acting is when he sees Big Sid sitting behind the, the other guy and he, he dials into the cheating. Mm-hmm. And that goes on for today. You would never go on that long. Yeah. It's a minute. He's sitting there figuring out what oh, big Sid yeah. signs are, and he's doing this. It's perfect. Yeah. Now it's goodwill hunting, right? Yeah. Like now it would have to be a whole thing, thing right. flashy editing and right. imagery. But you have to have yeah. someone yelling at each other or something. Yeah. It wouldn't just, let it go on. Yeah, it's just the Kuleshov effect, right? Shot reaction, shot reaction. Right. And he's just taking it all in. And he's and he and he does it in a subtle way with the squinting, and he's and he figures it out, and the whole film changes at that point. Yeah. And of course, it sets him up to figure out. The other, the bigger con at right. the end to see through Krenna. Right, and, and see that Krenna's, you know, and he says at the end, can't cheat your friends, Mr. Brody. Phil, or he still calls him yeah, Phil, right, you right, can't right. cheat your friends, Phil. And that's, he goes over to Larry's fish house. We all, we all wish we had that. Like I always said, I, I, I wish I had a father like Hector Elizondo, you know. I had a, I had a great dad and no big dish. He's still around, he's 95, but it, 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 it seemed he had a, um, a discipline to him that you don't see in men today. And, mm. And a pride in his work, and and I just don't come across that too much. The guy, and, and the fact that Dylan wore his dog tags from probably World War II, you know, that was a big subtext in the Tarantino film that uh, Brad Pitt been a war yeah, hero. Yeah, they'd seen the service. Yeah, and and we don't even see those people today. It's it's we honor people, and they do they put themselves in harm's way, and then you got to respect that. But back then, it wasn't a done thing, you know. Yeah. And the fact that Marshall, you know, that was in the script and this, that, and the other, it, it kind of meant something. It gave you some context of who these people were. So you, you had all this backstory, but you didn't have to spoon feed it to people in some kind of a scene. You understood. Yeah, it's just drifting there. That, that people had changed and the neighborhood had changed and, and his father was driving an old 55, you know, du, Dumont or something, I don't know, some car, LaSalle or something, and it barely worked. And the kid knew his way around a car. And that's the changing times. I mean, the, what happened in in, um, in Dirty Dancing was the, the Jack, what's-his-face character, Jack, um, Greg, Jack Weston character, had to actually come out and say, yeah. this is the end of this. Right? That yeah, was kind no, of a it's, cheater. It's very declarative. Yeah, I say, I say why, why do we have to hear this? No one talked like this back then, and, and he just took, said, okay, now we know this isn't happening anymore. I didn't need that. Yeah. Well, it's, there's the difference between a movie like that where it really has, you know, abortion has to be a whole thing and racism has to be a whole thing, where it needs these things to land with the teenage viewer because the kids will not have, in 1987, need to know what the, right. what the, the benchmarks are, what the, what the landmarks sure. are. Sure. Um, or the highway exits, for lack of a better term. Like, this is this bit now. Right. Uh, or then you see something like, um, the other one I was thinking of is, is weirdly enough, Itumama Tambien, where it's just this beautiful kind of ramshackle road comedy with three people in a car, right. and then at the very end, the, the narrator just drops, they're never going to see each other again. Right. And your heart just kind of goes, just yeah. a little bit, but it stays yeah. with you. And Good the movie. Flamingo Kid is made for the parents. Right. Flamingo Kid is made for the adults in the audience. It was made in 84 for people who, who, who remember that. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it wasn't made for us, and yeah. it was made for people. It, was, it had a certain nostalgia. The way Happy Days had a certain nostalgia when it came on the air in 73. 
from people who are now in families and kids and sat and watched network television because there was nothing else on. Yeah. And that's what it was for. And, and that was the sweetness of Happy Days because it, it had the same tone. Yeah, well, the very title, right? Like his reassuring yeah. nostalgia show. But the one camera Happy Days were marvelous because the Fonz was this little... Oh, that's right. He was barely sun. a player yeah, and then yeah. it became a multi-cam phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, it was... It was, uh, it was um, it would be a huge film, I mean, huge series, but the one had some subtleties. Had what we talk about, charm, where the multi-camera didn't have any charm. And and I, I'm a big fan of charm, as we as we said before. Yeah. And w- what film today has any charm? You, you, you'd be hard-pressed. Oh, there's got to be something. None of this anime, none of this Marvel action hero stuff has any charm. Uh, there's some animation that once in a while. What is the Ant Man movies are fun. They're sweet. They're designed as the sort of well, Paul idiot Rudd. little brother. Yes. So Paul, Paul Rudd, Rudd is, is capable charm. is capable yeah. of, of, of emanating some charm because he, he is, is kind of a kind of a, a, a delayed adolescence to him. Yeah, uh, he's a very charming guy. Yeah. He is. He's um he's challenging it in interesting ways too as an actor, I think. Which yeah. Is, which is no, I, I I'll give you that. I, but I, yeah, I mean it's true. I'm stretching for an example there. Shazam is charming. Shazam is adorable. It's about a little boy who gets to turn into a sack uh, right. and beat people. But up. who is that for? Not for us. No, no. I mean that's absolutely kids' comics. Yeah, kind of you, you're not you're not looking at a film. But right. if you're looking for I don't know middle aged stuff, I don't know where you, you see find nothing it. on TV. Everything on TV's got this horrible edge now. That, well, it's antiheroes. Right, we're still in there. Yeah, right? big antiheroes. I mean, but something like The Good Place is charming. That's a show I'll fight for. Yeah, it, I think it's going off the air. It is. The it's finished week. four seasons and out. That was the plan, apparently, yeah. and I, it, I will hate to lose it because it's doing uh, just the idea that there is a charming, funny, inspired comedy about philosophy and right. you know the, the 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 core of the show over and over again is what we owe to each other. Right, and, and dancing, dancing's great. He's great, but the idea that someone would make a show that engages with that stuff and also has Blake Bortles jokes, right? And they they, they tried to do that with This Is Us a little bit. Oh yeah, they, they tried to create a little bit of charm there, a little bit of place. I mean, that that for the first season I thought was ter- was terrific. I have um, to admit, I sort of drifted away from it. Yeah, I did after the first season too, but it had a little something going on. But but that's you know, in coming of age these days, usually involves some sort of you know, sexual awakening and whatever it is, and I, I, you know, it, it's it's you get things which is a good movie, Call Me by Your Name, and things mm-hmm. like that, different kind of. Also nostalgic, right? Set in the eighties. Said in the eighties had had some had some characters to it and yeah. definitely looked good. I'm trying to think of a modern coming of age movie that doesn't back away from the era. It's the, like the moment that it's made. Uh, Madeline's Madeline last year, a little um, film that nobody saw. Right. Uh, Josephine Decker's movie. It takes place when present day. Oh yeah. Uh, set in uh, set in New York, and it's about a 16 year old actress. Well, she's not an actress. She wants to be an actress. She is like she's a natural, but um, this this amazing actor named Helena Howard uh, who gets cast in a sort of theater school, experimental theater production right. that Molly Parker is running. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, um, Barely Got Released is one of the best films I saw last year. I'll have to look it up. Yeah. And The Coming of Age is almost incidental. It's really, in this case, it's not about an awakening. It's more about disillusionment and learning that you can't trust adults. But, I mean, so is this. So is The Flamingo Kid, right? Like, That's the, the whole base of it all. Yeah. I, I like Me and Earl and the Dying Girl. That, that had something a little bit going on yeah. with it. What you're seeing in, in, in a lot of these films, especially Adventureland, too, is, is the um, the kind of fallacy of the perfect parent. Yeah. You know, uh, in, in, in Flamingo Kid, it's, it's a two-dimensional father who, who, who you know, has his own dreams, but he's who he is. In these other movies, you're seeing like the decline of the American middle, middle class. You see people struggling on both ends of the rope. And, I mean, I think that's a good thing. I mean, obviously, but you're seeing the decline of the parental role model. Mm-hmm. You know, Wally and Theodore, all that stuff is gone. You know, Carol and the Brady Bunch, that, that's all gone. But you know, strong parental figures just aren't something you see anymore. Everyone's got their crises and their problems and this and the other. and You don't see the strong father figure anymore. Right. You Did, know. Were they real, though? I mean, is that— not, Oh, I believe there were guys yeah, like that. It wasn't just a creation? No, no, I believe, I believe, I believe if, you, if, you, if you go back that far to my generation or— or, or a little further back in, in terms of this, mm-hmm. that there were fathers where, you know, they, it was their house and they paid the bills. Don't forget, one-income families. Yeah, yeah. Guy was a plumber, probably making five, six bucks an hour on a good day. Back in those days. Yeah, yeah. Living in an apartment probably cost him 200 bucks a month maybe on a good day. This is what I mean, right? The, um, and, the thing well, and, these are, and these are non-college parents. So the, his right. goal was to get both his kids into higher education. That's a constant theme. Yeah. In the, in the 
in every flashback movie, right. every every coming of age, every every nostalgia piece, it's like you got to have a better life than I did. But it was a ticket. I mean, back then, I, I it was kid was going to Columbia, so I league school. It was a ticket. There's no yeah, question. Sure. Today, it might not be a ticket, but but back then, it was a ticket. And that's what you you know. My father never went to university. My mother did. My mother went to Penn State. That's where I went. But uh, she had an education. But you know, it was never a doubt that this is what you were doing. You know? Right. My sister left town to become a comedian, so she never went to college. But she, she was smart, smarter than that, I guess. Yeah. I went twice, but it never took. Where, where'd you go? I took a year of film at York in 1987 and hated it. Uh, and it was not a good program then. It is apparently much, much better now. Oh, it's right. turning out some tremendous talent. Good. But when I was there, some people came in through it. Um, dear friends of mine, actually, some of them actually work in the industry, but right. I, it was not for me. Uh, and then I went to Ryerson for journalism in 1990, was there for a year, and was offered a column at the Star, and my profs just said, take it, go do that. And, uh, I think yeah. that's kind of, I, I was going to, I graduated, then I went to, I got into Ryerson or Carleton, one of the two, I forget. I already had a full-time job, so mm-hmm. what, what's the point? You know, I had a, I had a job at a paper, so what, what am I going to do? Yeah, no. That's the ultimate goal to go to, 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 to noodle around academic theories about journalism. No, I got a job. I'll learn. Yeah, I'll no, that's, my thing. that's what my – And that was, that was the point of, of Jeffrey getting the job at the um, club. He's made Kev Attaball. Yeah, I picked it up. Yeah, you made connections. <laughs> he knew how to make tips and he knew how to do it. It was, it was fun. Everybody had that. Didn't you have a job like that when you were a kid? No, no, nothing like that. I worked at a video store. Uh, a couple of video stores and uh, a camera store. I worked all as a, of these things are gone now. Yeah, I worked at a, as a camp counselor when I was 16. I wasn't very good at it. And and I and then I missed I, a lot of my friends around were counselors for years. And I never worked in a group until I got my job at the newspaper. My summers were kind of a little sketchy. But I remember that summer as a counselor and it was it was quite terrific. Yeah. You know, it was it was a fun summer, a great bunch of people and it was exactly the same tone. Yeah, social circle expands. Right. Just around. Right. There were girls. You know, yeah, yeah. It was, it was eight weeks. You live with a bunch of great guys. It was, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> so th- that's your, your, the, the summation of your life. You, you tell your life through movies. This is one of the movies. This one in Meatballs, which is – I went to that camp for a bunch of years and I knew I, – when I was a journalist at the newspaper, I, I interviewed everybody possibly connected with the film. You might have to say stop with the Meatballs. <laughs> Um, but I went the following year. I was at White Pine the next year in 1980. Right, because they shot it in 78. 79. No, they, it, it came think. out in 79. Oh, then that's when I went to White Pine? Because they took us to see the film in a theater So it was 79. It was 79. So, okay, yeah. so then it was 78 that, that was That it. was the, the year I got my job at the paper. Oh. And they sent me out for um, – the you know, first time I was a full-time entertainment guy. It was 40 years ago. Wow. And they sent me out for lunch with Pauline Kael. How did that go? Not good. Um, so she said, what was your favorite movie? And I said, Meatballs. She goes, you might be the wrong person to be talking to me. Oh, good God. And uh, she was very bright, very classy. And we had, we, had, we had lunch. And don't know why George Anthony sent me out for lunch with her, but I was a sacrificial lamb. I was a sacrificial lamb a few times <laughs> in this paper. Were they courting her for something? I mean, no, they just – George just didn't want to get involved. I mean George, well, I George is, was the film critic and he didn't have uh, – his approach to film was, was very much unlike Pauline Kael's. Yeah. At that newspaper, that just magnified the difference. And, uh, you know, he didn't um, – didn't want to get engaged in like, like auteur theory with her. You know, he said, put this punk kid in and maybe I'll have a better, better perspective on it. No, I didn't. <laughs> I did not. Uh, uh, I never had that kind of taste in film. I think the first uh, first interview I ever did was with um, Fassbinder's Muse, uh, Hannah. Shigula. Yeah. First huh. interview I ever did. Took her out for lunch. I had no idea. what. And I like Fassbinder, but I didn't have any kind of – they used to send me to these things. Yeah, and, and to those of you listening who cannot conceive of a time when people would take people for lunch for an interview, I did a few of those as well, and they were always really interesting, even when the – But you're, you're more – I, I, even though I'm in the film business and this yeah. – you're a much more knowledgeable film guy. You oh, are a film. Now. You are a film, but you're a filmic guy. You can you can sit through screenings and go through this. And my history in film, like as a reporter, was I went on a few junkets, but the sense I could stomach and people yeah. that I knew. Oh, junkets are horrible. And and I and I reviewed a couple of films in my life, but I I was a rock critic, so I was always into the visceral sense of a live show. Mm. And so my favorite movies are very visceral. No, Annie Hall is as New York as it possibly gets. You so know. it's about environmental culture. Right. And right. Lingo Kid as well. I guess. 
I want to be immersed. I want to, you know, that kind of thing. I'm not one of these guys who, who can sit back and just sort of analyze things as they go. I want to be into the thing physically. You know, we used to see horror movies as a kid with Hammer films. We were like, oh, we were there. Yeah. And, and don't forget, you lived at home and, you know, you're younger than me. But back in the day, you had a black and white TV. Until I was 12, 13 years old, for sure, we had black and white TV. So, so color was the movie. Thing. Your relationship is different, yeah. yeah. Right. So, so it's it's a whole much more visceral, physical thing. Yeah. I, I, I By don't, the time I was twenty, I had a laser disc player and a small right, color television set. Right. How, and and we just didn't have that. And and and, and we we were in the business of going to films. Even when I moved to LA, and I had a Writers Guild card, which meant you got in free during. I, we went to movies all the time. Yeah. Because I like going out. I like being part of a group. I'm, I was part of the whole thing. I don't remember the crowd at that theater. That I think it was pretty thin. But the film grossed like $33 million. Yeah, no, so it was a good number. It was his second feature, I want to say, and his first real hit. Yeah, it was, it was sort of struggled. Yeah, this was a good number. So film obviously hit a chord with a lot of people, which is – otherwise you wouldn't have me on the show <laughs> or the podcast. Well, I did want to ask. I mean the other thing – the other reason you are here is because you're – as the – President of Unobstructed View, right. you, you just announced that you have the Criterion Collection. Yes, we do. So are you going to start lobbying to get the Flamingo Kid into the Criterion Collection? No, I'm, I'm – <laughs> the first thing I'm lobbying for is in like Flint and our man Flint. Yeah, that's <laughs> never gonna, well, I was going to say that will never happen, but they did just release the Valley of the Dolls films, didn't they? The classics. Could do a 60s thing there. Yeah, you could, absolutely. I don't think anything is beyond the point. Flamingo Kid restored. Yeah, I mean you could do that. I, I think they're – when you go to – Talk to the Criterion people, and they're, they're lovely people. They are. But I've known them for 30 they're, years. They're lovely people, but they're serious about what they do. This is not a, 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 a sidebar. I've noticed that in some of the, the cultier film companies I work with, Kino Lorber, uh, them, uh, film movement in the U.S., Menemsha, these guys are fairly serious about what they do. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're fairly into the films, and they, 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 they show up with a point of view, and when they when they when they restore a film, they restore a film. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think at this point, you don't get into this business unless you love it so much right. that you can't imagine any other life. There's no 25 year old salesman selling DVDs. You know, I just hired a guy who's in his 50s and a lovely guy, but he knows his movies. Right. He knows his horror. He knows his films. So Criterion is is to me the gold standard. Oh, hell always yeah. was, always will be, and and you're seeing that people who are into film. And want to collect pristine copies and pristine versions of them. You can't get them online. You can't. Can't want. I mean, Criterion has it on has it as well, site, which is great. The channel now. Yeah. The channel's great, but outside of that, you can't count on a lot of these places anymore. Netflix is not in that business anymore. No. The Disney business will not include a lot of this stuff. The Warner Channel might include some Warner stuff, but it won't be that wide. Yeah, I was amazed. Just last month, somebody asked if I knew where they could find all that jazz. And it's only on disc. Right. It's not streaming. Or it right. wasn't a month ago. A lot of, a lot of guys, we deal with some obscure, obscure labels in the U.S. And they take pride in the fact that it's not available on any of their platform. I think Suspiria, the one that, that came out from Synapse that we put out, is not available anywhere else. Oh, I can't imagine. No. The Changeling that came out from Severin that did a huge number is only available and, uh, we're trying to get the rights for TV up here, but we, we can't. Wow. Um, that was a restoration. They had 40,000 Blu-rays out of the box. Mm-hmm. So there are people – we had a booth at Fan Expo, and people would come by and say, yeah, I got 10,000 DVDs. Yeah. So th- there's a collectability. There's an immediacy to it. There's also, um, you know, a, a pride that people take, and they can they can get up in the morning and plan their day out and watch a movie. You have to worry about – Paying fourteen bucks a month to Netflix and shuffling through the de- deteriorata there, and yeah. so so I, I think there's a, people. We just sold some. Uh, we had the Raptors DVD from the championship, and we 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 used to have an account at, at Maple Leaf Sports. They have a gift shop there, and they sell. And the, the the buyer said, "I don't think people buy DVDs anymore, do they?" I go, "No, that's not really the way." It's <laughs> it's a platform that that has a lot of life left in it. Yeah, and and a lot of people today who see the demise of, of 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 great cinema on various, you know, digital platforms or TV platforms, they know this is the only place you're able to get it. Yeah, I'm I'm going to run a poll the week this episode comes out, uh, a Twitter poll from the from the Semcast account to just find out, you know, like for the listeners who who has more physical media than watches on streaming, something like that. And I suspect, I mean, if you're dealing with 
a film podcast, you're going to get a, a higher level right. of engagement. But I suspect it's probably something like 70-30 or even 80-20. I believe it's it's that number. And I believe the people that engage on the message boards and this, that, and the other and the Twitter feeds are dissecting every new release on frame rates and this, that, and the other. It was the old thing in the laser disc business. Sure. People would, would just dissect stuff frame by frame. So there are people that, that we got in trouble once. We, we restored the Ruddles. Oh, yeah. And we, I made the mistake of blowing up the picture, taking you it mean, to 69 oh, four, three. Oh, yeah, no. no got, no. Some, got some nasty comments on that one, and uh, we don't have it anymore. The license ran up, but I won't do that again. No, there was um, uh, Tony Palmer's uh, epic 15-hour BBC series of, of about music called All You Need Is Love from the 70s, I think, 1974, right. 1975. They made a big deal when, I think it was MPI that put it out. When they released it, they blew it up, they zoomed it, and then they zoomed up and down as well. So oh, they did. Like panning oh, and scanning oh, it's it. terrible. And it's, he insisted it was how he wanted it. It's how he would have packaged it at the time. And I was like, dude, come on. No, no you shot a square. Be a square. Yeah, right? no, it's not, I mean, no. four by three, but. When you start moving the frame around, we did that once on Black Like Me, and it was, it was a little bit, it didn't, and the film isn't that important. No one cared that much, mm-hmm. but I, I wouldn't do it again. Yeah, and you get to the point now where, I mean, like, I was, I've, I've, you know, you see all the different Kubrick editions that come out where um, <laughs> they just, Tony is changing his version. Like, or, no, sorry, not Tony. Leon, Leon Vitali is right. changing his version of on the story because the new technology is here. And yeah, Stanley would have been fine with this. It's like, just... No, he wouldn't. Release it the way it looked. Right. Do the thing you did. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't... Um, I don't... I, I know I'm a purist. So, yeah, well, so. and, and Criterion, for their part, has been really great about that. The uh, I think there's one film that was released in two aspect ratios. Right. But they have both versions. They made a point of it. Right. Um, and it's... Uh, yeah, I mean, I, speaking as someone who... Every Thanksgiving goes down to New York and comes back with a suitcase full of discs from the well, Barnes and Noble sale. I'm very glad that you guys. Well, this year this we're going to have our own sale. So if you if you if you come on uh, unobstructedview.com, uh, you'll see the sale like direct uh, to consumer. Yeah, nice. And then we are working with some retailers like Sunrise and Cinema One to bring prices down for that period. Excellent. We Amazon will come down. I, I felt when we picked up the line that it's been unfair to the Canadian consumer to be paying what they were paying for product. We're, we're happy to work a little thinner. And bring more people into the conversation. Well, I mean, the volume alone's got to make it justifiable. It does. It does. I mean, it, it does to a point, but you have to make a conscious decision that that you're going to be of the people and try and make sure that they're not getting penalized for being Canadian. Okay. And, well, and that's well. There's always been a penalty on the exchange, and I made sure yeah. the exchange rate that we're running is is lower than what the dollar exchange is. So, so if if a a, a U.S. for example, a U.S. Blu-ray is thirty nine ninety eight. Before it was well over fifty bucks, and now it's forty nine ninety eight. Right. Which is very corresponding to what you're making. That's pretty good. So we we changed that. All right. So what should people grab right now? Well, uh, there's stuff coming in November. I don't have the tip of my tongue what exactly is because they're focusing on this. But right. Well, what's your favorite thing in the last few boxes you've seen? I mean, I well, well I, I you see, I can't, I can't because um, we have other labels. I mean, just within the criterion. For a recommendation, like I was going to say, local hero, which just local hero, yeah, is, the local hero. I've looked at that. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's it's, it's very well done. It's authorized by, by by the filmmaker and everything. That that and I loved that movie when it first came out. Mm-hmm. So I would say local hero. Excellent. We also have a RoboCop coming out in a metal box from Arrow. Oh, nice. Oh, it's a big deal. With I didn't the, know the you X, guys had Arrow. We have Arrow, yeah. Oh. The X-rated version. Twelve too. Monkeys, Crimson Peak. Yeah, yeah, all that. Yeah, 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 yeah. You gotta you gotta look on the website. I will go back and to the website. Yeah, no, we have we have all that. <laughs> um, but no, Arrow's got that, and they, they we we sold out of uh, American Werewolf in London. The, the box that the just metal. came out. Didn't yeah, it? yeah. There's another version coming. It's a little lesser, but there's two versions of RoboCop. There's a multi-disc with a lot of features, and there's a uh, the Steelbook. Cool. And that's gonna be big. Yeah. And. Uh, no, we have a lot of stuff coming, and, and we find people find us, and we find them, and we have some very good retailers that work with us, and we're hoping to expand, again, grow the conversation. Well, I'm delighted to see it happening, uh, just as a purely partisan, uh, you know, a physical media partisan. Right. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm so glad we've come through whatever the hell was where everybody was pivoting to streaming and abandoning right. physical media. And the, the majors are still releasing stuff, and it looks good, and it's fine. But the deeper catalog is being farmed out. To right. I mean, you know, and I'm, they're not specialists, and they're they're they have a Walmart account, and Walmart is what the Walmart is. The Walmart Best Buy no longer has this business going. I know. Um, Amazon is Amazon is Amazon. That's not really what I got into the business. 
Although they're lovely people, and, sure, and sure. I, I, I got in this business when selling stuff to a bunch of different people he had FaceTime with, and I still have people like that, and that's what keeps me going. You know, so it's, you know, it's been a good ride. Twenty-seven years, right? In February, well, the longest-running show in in Canada. It's amazingly enough, we start out selling every women in prison film ever made, uh, <laughs> and then. We got lucky with the Royal Canadian Air Force way the hell back when. So that's how it started. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I wake up some days in a good mood, so it's okay. Nice. Well, before we go, the final question on the podcast is always the same. Is there anything of the Flamingo Kid that you have borrowed or lifted or absorbed or outright stolen and incorporated into your own creative stuff? No, no, no. I, I, I wrote this film, uh, which – I wrote a film called Sackfly, uh, which I'm trying to get going. And it, it has – the same kind of breathability. Mm-hmm. It, 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 I, I made it, I wrote it um, to have that New York feel from the early 90s, which is which is still a period that, that is worth right. nostalgia. And it's, picks, it's about a kid, about a, a guy who's 35 who plays softball for a living. So it has all that and there's outside characters. It's based on a book, but I changed some things. Um, that's it. You know what, I, I again, I, I, the Flamingo Kid is, is part of my upbringing. So I relate to it in a different level. Right. And, and, and so I'm not going to steal from my life. And, I, and some of that is my life. And I still have a friend in, in, in New York who has a cabana somewhere. I'm going to go visit him. See, there you yeah. go. Yeah. <laughs> There's a connection. Yeah. My thanks to Jonathan Gross, who once again would like me to remind you that the Unobstructed View Black Friday sale runs to the end of November, offering 40% off Criterion titles and 50% off Aero discs. And you can take advantage of that at unobstructedview.com. Thanks also to Winnie Wong. She knows what she did. You can find Jonathan on Twitter at jgro54, that's jgro 54 and you can find The Flamingo Kid on Blu-ray and DVD from Kino Lorber Studio Classics. It's not streaming anywhere, which is kind of surprising, but it also makes it feel like a little treasure. Physical media, kids. We just talked about this. Oh, and the Criterion title with multiple aspect ratios is On the Waterfront, which in fact has three different presentations of the feature. I think that's cool. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. Our shiny new theme song is by The Last Year. If you have an opinion on it or the show you just listened to, please let us know. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you enjoyed this episode. It would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network. They're pretty good. Thanks for your support. And thanks for listening. See you next week.